This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title of Christian Fundamentals. The present series is devoted to redemption and is number two of that series. It is our habit at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. So those of you who are listening to this recording, if you would like to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two while we read two psalms, Psalm 50 and Psalm 51. Quite a number of years ago when we lived in the country, I was invited to give a paper at a literary society that hadn't got any Christian basis. They were those who indulged in poetry and writing novels and all sorts of things to do with literature. And I responded by giving a paper on some of the wonderful figures of speech found in the scriptures. And at the end of that meeting, a lady who was in the chair made this remark, and we were only thinking about it recently. She said when she was in the study of the canon, who was the canon of the Church of England in that place, he was speaking about the scriptures, and he picked up his Greek New Testament, and he placed it on the Hebrew Bible, and he said, What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Now, I think that was magnificent, don't you? Isn't that the truth? Well, now, with regard to our subject this evening, sacrifice in all scripture, there is a tendency on the part of some who have leanings to what we call modernism to put the law of Moses in antagonism to the prophets and say that the law of Moses reveals a primitive, rather a savage sort of God who indulged in blood sacrifices. But later on, the prophets, they said, what does God demand of you but to walk humbly with thy God? And the very Psalms we, we read together, they're joined together in one thing that in both cases there is an apparent repudiation of sacrifice. You see, the Lord said, I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds, and so on. But we mustn't forget there are two sides to every question. And before ever he repudiates the sacrifice on the, from the hands of these people, he says, Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So the self-same psalm that says, I'm not asking you to offer these sacrifices, says my saints have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So you must take the two, which no good emphasizing one and say that's true. And when you begin to read such a passage as this in the first chapter of Isaiah, he says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread or to trample my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me, and so on and so on. And these words have been taken out of their context as an argument that the prophets were now standing up and saying, we repudiate the law of Moses and all the Levitical sacrifices. All you have to do is to just walk in harmony with God and so on. All you have to do, friend, that's the very thing neither they nor we could do. 
So when I come back to Psalm 51, and I could also be told by somebody that this desire is not sacrifice. And then he goes on to say the are a broken spirit. You see, that could be used as an argument of setting aside the system. But David was asking this, deliver me this, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy David knew the law of God, and David knew full well that the law of Moses said, thou shalt take no satisfaction for a murderer. And David was done. No good trying to placate God with bulls and goats and lambs. There was no satisfaction provided under the law of Moses for a murderer. And yet, this man could sit in the presence of God or stand and say, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud, not of thy mercy, but of thy righteousness. That man was looking down the age to the one only sacrifice that mattered. Christ's. All the others were types. If they were used right, then they were a help to them. But if they trusted in a mere ritual, it was just the same as a ritualist today. What he is doing may be in the scriptures, but why he's doing it is just to put his trust in ordinances and ceremonies and consequently, as Paul said to the Galatians, fall from grace and find Christ should profit them nothing. But of course I should be very remiss if I didn't remind you that the very psalm that says, Thou desirest not sacrifice, goes on to say, then shall they be pleased with the thou shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. So you see, you could make a contradiction in these terms, in these two psalms, if you wished. But I think once again we see that it's approached from two points of view. If you saw the sacrifices under the Mo- under the mosaic ritual were fingers pointing on to Christ, they were a blessing. If you rested in them and thought you got away with it, they may be the very reverse. And Christ himself, in Hebrews chapter 10, is quoted as saying, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. Is that the end of it? No. He said it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me, lo, I come and we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. We are back again then. Sacrifice is insisted upon throughout the whole Bible. In some cases, it's a type and a shadow only treated as such. In other cases, it's the reality, bowing its presence as such. But there's no divorce. So shall we say, in the language of the canon of the church years ago, when he was speaking about inspiration, should we say it again with regard to the testimony of Scripture, with regard to the necessity of the sacrifice, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And my object this evening is not to dilate or try to explain all the passages that will come before us. For some of you will be more like Eutychus, who fell out the window because I continued long. What I want to do tonight is a simpler thing. 
I want to assemble material. And friends, in this chapel, you do remember, I have in mind others for whom this may be very, very essential and necessary. Because until you know the material and have got it, you cannot really study it or in any measure interpret it. So, it won't be, I trust, anything that will cause us distress if we simply turn from passage to passage and leave most of the explanation for another time. Now, most of you know that the uh, old, the scriptures practically fall into a sevenfold group. I don't think it's fanciful. We're not saying, well, seven's a good number, let's make it fit seven, because it seems almost automatically to do so. We have the Saviour's warrant for the threefold division of the Old Testament. In Luke 24, he endorsed the canon of Scripture as we know it to this day, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The only thing about the last one is that some people may think it's limited to the books we call the Psalms. But there's a habit in the Hebrew mind of putting whatever comes first as the title for the lot. So the Psalms include the poetic books, the book of Job. It includes the book of Proverbs. It includes Ecclesiastes, the wisdom books, Song of Solomon, all come under the heading Psalms. That is to say, that type of book. So we've got the threefold division of the Old Testament. And then we have the Gospels, which give you the earthly life of Christ. We have the Acts of the Apostles that span the period when that was being put into practice and the movement from Jerusalem to Rome. Then we have the Epistles that were written rather to explain what Christ had done and give it doctrinal meaning and then the book of the Revelation which brings it to a crisis and a climax. Now it's very difficult without a great deal of pondering to be sure that you give even uh, correct headings to these seven-fold divisions. But um, have you ever tried to write in a tube, train? Well, if I can't read my own writing, uh, it may be all to the good because I ought not have attempted it. But coming here in the train, I put down that Genesis foreshadows the sacrifice. It's got the great primitive promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head and be bruised in so doing. And then we have the um, prophets. That's the, uh, the or Genesis is really before the administration of the law, because although it was written by Moses, it was written before his time, as it were. The law commences with Exodus and Leviticus. And there we have this great sacrificial work of Christ most wonderfully typified. You know, remember how we have the Passover, we have all the cleansings, we all have all the different uh, sacrifices for different offences, we have them enumerated in Leviticus, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, and so on. And then we have in the um, Psalms, mainly the experimental approach to the doctrine of sacrifice. Like we've got David. He knew all about the offering of bullocks and that it was a part of the divine plan. But he realised that the offering of bullocks wouldn't touch his case 
But he didn't set sacrifice aside. He only said, I want the greater one. I want the better one. I want the real one. And that was in harmony with the purpose of type and shadow to point on. And then in the Gospels, of course, we have the historic fact. The Christ who was born at Bethlehem was born with one object, to die. Everyone else of us are born into this world, not with the object that we may die, but here we are belonging to a mortal race, but he came into it voluntarily to lay down his life, a sacrifice for sin. And then we have the Acts of the Apostles, where we have the outcome of this in the formation of different groups of believers bearing their testimony to the saving grace that comes to them through Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. The epistles then go on to take this and give us the emphasis upon the one mediator, the ransom for many, the redemption and the atonement, and ultimately in the book of the Revelation we have the age purpose coming to a climax and the one dominating word throughout the whole of the book of the Revelation is the lamb as it had been slain. If you've never done so, don't wait too long before you go through the pages of the book of the Revelation and underline every reference to the Lamb of God. And I think you'll be surprised even, though you know so much about it, to discover how the Lamb is the dominating factor in that closing book of Scripture. Well now, with that sort of preamble, let us acquaint ourselves with the material. And on this chart, we shall reserve our, I think most of our time will be taken in going down this side and just facing the fact that these things are thus written. We have in the, um, in the uh, book of Genesis, the beginnings of the whole story, naturally, the entry in of sin and death, and death by sin, We have the natural and right act of Adam and Eve when they were conscious of their guilt to cover themselves. But the wrong thing was that they tried to manufacture the covering. Now do remember, there's a passage in the, in the Proverbs which says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. And yet, God provides a covering. So you see, there's two aspects of the word to cover. One means to cover up, to cloak, to disguise, to fail to confess. And that's where David broke down, you remember. He had a year of bitterness because he refused to acknowledge. And then at last he did. At last he did. I acknowledge. My sin is ever before me. So that there's no possibility that God are allowing any one of us to cover up our sin. No. But nevertheless, although they were wrong to make a covering which was stripped from them, that's the very thing God provided. But you see the difference. What God provided meant that a sacrifice was offered. There's no idea of sacrifice if you pluck leaves off a tree. In fact, the vegetable world seems to thrive on being nibbled down and cut down and sprouting again. But you can't do that even with a four-footed animal. You can't keep on at it. And here God showed them in the garden that there was a need for a covering. They were right. 
but it must be God's provided, and it must have this sacrificial element about it. So, we have in Genesis 3, 21, these words. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. He made them. The first type that was ever given in Scripture was directly given by God to man. Well, then we have in chapter 4, immediately following the case of Cain and Abel. And this is repeated in the New Testament. It's not left for us to guess. The Epistle to the Hebrews speaks twice of the blood of Abel. And it's not quite clear whether it refers to the blood of the martyr who shed, whose blood was shed or to the sacrifice which he offered. Because in one case it says, which speaketh better things than the blood of Abel, referring to the mediator in the New Jerusalem, and the other, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And though he be dead, yet he still speaketh. So in both cases, the blood speaks. And in the very record in the Old Testament, the blood of thy brother cries from the ground. So that's been picked out. Now this record of Cain and Abel given in Genesis 4, 3-7 reads like this and in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. So you're told what the offering was. Cain was a worshipper. He brought an offering. Adam and Eve made a covering. But Adam and Eve had to have it stripped from them. And Cain's offering lacked one thing. And Abel, he brought also. Please remember the word also is in the wrong place in the authorised version. It doesn't say in the original, and Abel, he also brought of the first things of his flock. It puts it this way. And Abel, he brought also over and above the offering that was like Cain's. His own offering, he covered it by the offering from the flock. Abel didn't bring merely the ground, the fruit of the ground that was cursed. He brought the symbol and the type of the offering that was yet to be offered by Christ. And so we are told that his was accepted. In the Septuagint version of the Bible, the Greek version, It's rather interesting to read a word that can be translated rightly divide. And it's rather important to know that Cain failed, failed tragically because he did not rightly divide between the offering which a worshipper brings himself and the offering which God alone can provide to make all service acceptable. He tried to make himself acceptable in his own right. And failed signally. So, I'll slip that in as I read um, verse 7. God said to Cain, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? That's one thing, isn't it? Well, if you haven't done well, what are you going to do? Sin lieth at the door. Now, this has been taken to mean that sin was crouching there to spring upon him like a panther. Well, I've looked up every reference to the word translated lieth. And here's one of them. 
and it's in line with many of them. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Well, I can't conceive that God would say that a sheep lying down in green pastures was crouching at the door to spring on anybody. No. God said to Cain, you've come to the door of of Eden. You've come to the place of worship where the cherubim and the flaming sword. You've both brought your offering. Now then, Cain, the sin offering is there, couching at the door. And you won't take it. No. You have not rightly divided between the bit that you brought, Cain, and the one that, oh, that must be offered to make anything you do acceptable. We'll have to go into this perhaps more intimately another time, but that's as far as we dare go, because as I said about Eutychus, and I want to remember him more than once in this evening's study. And chapter 6, verse 14. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. This is known to most of us here, that the word pitch, both noun and verb, are the words that are translated elsewhere, reconciliation and atonement, particularly atonement, covering. Not a covering up, but a covering to protect, because an ark built of wood, however soundly made, would have not stood up in the flood, it would have sunk. But the pitch made it watertight. And in this neighbourhood, there's no need to explain to many people who are at work here all day that a covering is a covering against risk and loss. And that is what is done by Christ's sacrifice. He covers the risk and the loss. And so we have these terms. Then we move from that to Genesis, the 8th chapter and the 20th verse. The ark has weathered the storm. The little company are out on a a world that's been desolated. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That was his way of accepting his deliverance typified by the pitch and further typified by the offerings that he put upon the altar, practically manifesting to angels and to those who were with him that he recognised his salvation was based upon this great sacrificial fact. Well, then we come to Exodus and in the 12th chapter we have that tremendous picture, the Passover. All I can do is to draw your attention to the way in which it is introduced and a one term in it and leave it. Exodus 12, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be unto you the beginning of months. It wasn't the beginning of months, it wasn't the beginning of the year, but it was to them because they were starting all over again in view of the redemption that was now going to be accomplished. And God said, in verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are, 
And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. A token. There's no merit in the blood of the Passover lamb. It's what it stands for in the eyes of God. A token. And so we've got this great Passover redemption given a, a chapter as it should be in Exodus. It was fulfilled by Christ who was taken at the very Passover period and crucified. And Paul writing later to the Corinthians said that Christ, our Passover, hath been sacrificed for us. And it's not possible to divorce the, the Passover from the testimony of John the Baptist where he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Well then we move from the uh, five books. I've only just touched upon a few. You can cram many more in. We move from the five books of Moses the Law to another link in the chain, the Prophets. Isaiah 53 has come immediately to mind, most of us I dare say. Let me just refer to one or two verses in passing. Isaiah 53. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. His soul an offering for sin. And again it says, at the end of verse 11, for he shall bear their iniquities. What can we do with a passage like Isaiah 53 in moments like this? We've got to come back to them in the course of this series of studies and give them much more attention. And then we have, in the first of the minor prophets, Hosea. The first of the minor prophets, Hosea, he says in chapter 3. Verse 3. Um, sorry, that's uh, not the passage I intended. <coughs> it says in verse 4, For the children of Israel should abide many days, without a king and without a prince. This is to show you the desperate condition in which they find themselves. But he goes further. The children of Israel should abide many days without a sacrifice. And that's put as though it's an indication that they are very far removed from the mind and will of God. And there's one in Hosea that I haven't recorded on this sheet that I will just mention. Draw your attention that comes at the close of this prophet, chapter 13, verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. You could often hear a preacher speaking of redemption from sin. But supposing God has redeemed us from sin, and he has forgiven us our sin, and then he forgot all about the fact that we need to be raised from the dead. Oh, he didn't. The ransom deals with our sin and deals with its consequences. I will ransom thee 
from the power of the grave. Well, then we move to Malachi, the first chapter, and then we've reached, by these great spans, the wonderful books of the prophets. And we've got a good deal more in front of us to just touch upon. Malachi chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now to thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person? God was very, very concerned and jealous for this fact that every type of the sacrifice of Christ, one thing had to be without spot, without blemish. That was the reason why they kept it from the 10th day to the 14th day of the Passover to examine it. Your lamb shall be without blemish. No sacrifice could be offered to God that was blemished. And so at the very end you see the dreadful condition of this people in their low estimate of the purpose of God. Well now I think I'll have to move rather quickly because time is going. I mentioned the first chapter of Job because as far as we know that goes right back to the earliest days quite independent of the law of Moses. And Abraham, you know, he offered sacrifice. And Noah he offered sacrifice, and neither Abraham nor, as far as I know, Job had ever read the law of Moses, for they lived and died beforehand. So it was implanted in the minds of men, quite outside the realm of the Mosaic law, that sacrifice was acceptable. And Job, you remember, was pointed out as a just man, and in order that his sons and daughters may not be contaminated and may not in any measure be displeasing to God, he periodically offered a sacrifice for him. He was the father in the home offering the sacrifice and so far as we can gather from the scriptures that was perfectly acceptable. Or again, we have Psalm 51 where we happen to read that. And there we have the confession of this man David. Purge me with hyssop has been misunderstood. It doesn't mean take herbal medicine. But it means the bunch of hyssop that sprinkles the blood. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Oh, what an anticipation there of Romans that he might be just and the justifier. Not merely the compassionate and the kind and the sympathetic, but he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. We move to the Gospels and we pick out a few passages there. I think I shall go straight away to Matthew 20. If you say you're omitting one there, well, I've omitted so many, I might as well omit a few more. Matthew 20. 
says in verse 26, It shall not be so among you. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. He said those words when he was ministering to Israel, because they were not all Israel which were of Israel, and he gave his life a ransom for the many. But when Paul was speaking of the great Gentile world, he said he was a ransom for all. And this time he distinguishes what he means, he says, for kings, for all authority, for all men of all classes and characters. So there's no divergence of teaching. In Matthew, a ransom for many. In Paul's ministry, a ransom for all. A ransom is the point to remember in both cases. Then in the Acts of the Apostles, the second chapter, again, passing over passage after passage in the Gospels. The Acts of the Apostles in the second chapter. Speaking of Christ, verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Strong words. No accident happened to Christ. He was born, he lived, and he died in harmony with the will and purpose of God. He came to fulfill it. But that doesn't mean to say that if people, through wicked intentions, did things that were wrong, that they were going to be excused. Oh no! In the Old Testament, God spoke to a heathen king. He said, you have been my battle axe, you have been my weapon against Israel, but you didn't intend it, so now I'm going to deal with you. So he says, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. But it didn't alter the fact that he came to give his life. Now I could have gone back to John's Gospel and he would have corrected some wrong thoughts here. He said, I lay down my life of myself. No man taketh it from me. So even though wicked hands crucified him, they could never have done so if he had not permitted it. So we still are walking in harmony with the revealed will of God. Well then we come to Romans, the third chapter, and the 23rd verse. Passing again many other passages that even in the Acts of the Apostles. Romans 3.23 and 24 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's one aspect. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or a mercy seat through faith in his blood. That's the other aspect. Two aspects of the one work. The delivering and the bringing near and the cleansing. And then we come to 1 Corinthians with its first chapter and its peculiar emphasis upon weakness and folly. Strange words to use of God. He says in verse 23 of chapter 1 that we preach Christ crucified. So there was no hesitation there on the part of the apostle. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, 
but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What could there be more foolish in the eyes of a philosophic world than putting your trust in a man who hadn't got power enough to save himself? They said it at the foot of the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Neither could he. In that sense. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Makes you wonder what it would be like when God bears his arm and the real power is exhibited if the weakness of God can accomplish your salvation and mine and bring this world back, a strayed world, to the foot of the Father. And then we go on in Galatians, just for an emphasis there, to link up with the teaching of the earlier part. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. That's the punishment under the law of Moses. And as I've said before, it's rather startling to be told that Peter never uses the word cross. Never uses the word cross. He says that Christ bare our sins in his own body on the tree. Or he, call, he calls upon those in Jerusalem and says, you hanged him on a tree. And Paul links the tree and the cross together in the one epistle to the Galatians to show that it was a saviour for the Jew and a saviour for the Gentile. And then we have our own epistle, as I may call it, Ephesians. And there are some I've met who, because they were chosen before the foundation of the world, because they were blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, said they had no need of a Redeemer. Well, that was monstrous. And waiting for us at the very seventh verse, in whom we have redemption, not merely by power, but still this old-fashioned, despised method, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And you get an emphasis again in the second chapter, Verse 13, And now in Christ Jesus, you sometimes were far off or made nigh by the blood of Christ. So that whether it be Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah 53, Matthew, Acts of the Apostles, or Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, shall we not say, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. For the sacrificial system runs right through in days of old, I was told, I'm not sure how true it is now, that if you took a rope that was belonging to the Royal Navy and cut it anywhere, you would find a red thread. Now, whether that's true today, it may not be true now because steel ropes have come in so much that that may have been discarded. But there's a truth there in the thought of the Scripture. Cut it where you will. It exhibits this thin red line. When our time is nearly gone, I'll give you one from the first of Peter, passing by a wealth of teaching in Hebrews. 1 Peter, verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold 
from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. It's precious in the estimate of this man, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. And then shall we come to Revelation, the first chapter, and hear the confession of those who at last are entering, going to enter into their great calling. Revelation, the first chapter, verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us, or loosed us, from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. And John said, when he heard the declaration concerning the dominion that was to be given, he said, I turn to see this lion of the tribe of Judah, and instead of seeing a lion in the midst of the throne, I saw a lamb, as it had been slain. And when he saw the new Jerusalem with all its glory, he said, the lamb is the light thereof. Well, this has been rather a stampede, friends, but I told you at the beginning I was only going to assemble material. And if I'd kept me word, we should have got more material in. But what can you do when it's all clamouring for a little word here and there of introduction or explanation? Now, I think we've got to go over it again. Because there are certain features which have been waiting for us in the second column under those headings, purpose, salvation, character of God himself, the nature of sin, that I think we ought to consider before we go on to look at other aspects. So may the Lord help us to appreciate that we are not our own, that we have indeed been bought with a price. And what a price! When we think that Peter could say the precious blood of Christ and Paul could say God spare not his only son on our account.